The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Banks feel the heat as billions of dollars of losses are exposed relating to the Archegos Capital fire sale, with Nomura shares adding to declines after its worst session in a decade. Despite that, the Dow closes at another record high, even as Viacom and Discovery move deeper into the red after last week's steep losses. An urgent caution from the CDC with the director warning of impending doom as President Biden says 90% of adults will be eligible for vaccines in less than a month. Most importantly, we let our guard down now. We could see a virus getting worse, not better. Traffic resuming in the Suez Canal after the ever-given tanker is freed. Oil trades higher as attention now turns to OPEC, with Saudi Arabia calling for extended output cuts. Unicredit investors are reportedly urged to protest against a 7.5 million euro pay packet for incoming CEO Andrea Orsel as he looks to take the helm for mid-April. So, very good morning, everybody. Let's uh, start with this headline story. Lenders exposed to equity swap trades with Archegos Capital could reportedly face more than $6 billion in losses. The hedge fund defaulted on calls for increased collateral following a downturn in U.S. media stocks, leading banks to warn of potential hits to their balance sheets. Meanwhile, the FT is reporting these companies discussed ways to limit the damage from the soured bets. Attention has turned to the fund's chief, Bill Huang. The 57-year-old cut his teeth at investor Julian Robertson's Tiger Management Fund before pleading guilty to insider trading in 2012. In a statement, Archegos said Huang is working to find a, quote, path forward for the company, adding it is a, quote, challenging time. Maybe the understatement of the morning, Steve. Uh I think we've all made a very big mistake on this story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting the ball on the tee, Jeffrey. Just on. put it on the tee, because we're allowed to now yeah. in this country. Right. I think we've all got it, the name of it wrong. <clears throat> we've been working out when we first saw the name, how to say it, and everyone's gone with Archegos, yeah? Uh, you're not going to do the Archaos gag, are you? No, I was going to oh, do okay. the Arch Egos gag. Oh, right, very good. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been done yet, has it? It's not a laughing matter. There are... No, bankers out there who might lose matter. their job it's over this. It's not a laughing matter, which is why you yeah. and I for two decades have complained about the standards in banking and risk management. And I'm sorry, we have. The fact of the matter is there are arch egos involved here as well. Not only, of course, in the people who ran this fund and thought that they could actually over leverage and actually beat the market, but also arch egos in the bankers who turned around to their risk managers, despite the history of this gentleman and despite the leverage involved in this, saying, 
it's okay. Because of the sums involved, because we're not greedy, but we just want a slice of those fees, we're going to ignore a lot of the warning signs about this company. We're going to ignore the fact that actually he might be over leveraged with other financial instruments out there. So yes, Archegos is the right name, I'm sure, but arch egos are certainly at play uh, in the banking sector here as well. And I'm sorry, it's not like, oh, we're telling you now about this. Oh, well, CNBC had told us beforehand, listen to what we've been saying for a long time. Uh, we said it in 2006, seven. We said it just before the dot-com bubble burst. We say it every time one of these companies blows up. You have a very highly paid risk management unit in the middle office for a reason, bankers. You don't just go there and say, it's okay, don't worry, we've got this. Thanks for worrying about it. These are the banks, I'll show you, that uh, have left themselves exposed to it, especially Nomura and Credit Suisse. And, and my goodness me, isn't it beginning to look, and I'll say what I said again yesterday, is Credit Suisse beginning to look careless with its risk management? Again, that's a journalistic question. It's not a slight on the company. I'm just asking, given the fact that there is exposure to Green Seal, exposure uh, to arch egos at Archegos as well. So is it beginning to look careless? I'll let everybody make their mind up, but I'm asking the question journalistically as well. And it's a new headache, of course, for the CEO who's trying to move on, is trying to turn the bank round. Nomura down 1.1%, having had, as Jeff said, one of their biggest declines. Goldman's and Morgan as well, of course, trying to uh, limit the damage uh, for their operations, not seeing the same kind of declines. Uh, clearly, much smaller losses is what the market is anticipating, or much smaller percentage losses to their profits over at Goldman's and Morgan Stanley. Let's have a look at a couple of stocks which are right behind this as well on the problem, and where the problem really came was Viacom CBS and this huge position, which the bankers allowed uh, Archegos to have prime brokerages service for the lending of stock and securities for as well. Uh, so that is the one which I think is at the epicenter of this crisis as well. Well, crisis for some, not for the broader market, by the way. And that's very important. We'll talk about that throughout the show, but not for the broader market. And I think there's some very interesting uh, lines that the market is trying to draw in the sand on this one as well. But let's get to Karen, who's going to bring in our next guest. Good morning, Steve. Well, this one has certainly stolen the narrative, hasn't it? And let's get to Greg Williamson, who joins us now, head of strategy at Pluribus Labs. Greg, nice to see you again. We've had a market that's been dominated by com uh, commentary around reflation trades, where the COVID is still posing a threat to some stock trades. You throw a couple of extra market worries in there, US tax and regulatory policy. But that said, the market is now very much fixated on this Kegel story and whether it signals something about too much leverage handed out to family offices and other funds across the market, potentially causing some form of a destabilizing effect if there's a reassessment of valuations of some stocks. Do you have any concerns at this point? Oh, absolutely. And Steve, Arch Egos, a classic. Never underestimate the ability of smart people to do stupid things. And how Wall Street and banks would allow a person with 5 to $10 billion in personal capital to leverage that to 30 50 or even $100 billion in concentrated equity bets without having any risk control in place and without the banks having risk control in place is almost unbelievable after all of the events that have occurred over the last 20 years from long-term capital to last year's Woodford Financial. Greg, the moves in uh, Viacom CBS, almost unbelievable too. I mean, this is a stock that investors have known for many years, uh, clearly has a couple of new tricks, including streaming up its sleeve. It's uh, launched that in recent times, but going to the market for a stock offering shouldn't see its stock then plunge and lose about half of its value in a very short period of time. What does that tell you about some of the market moves we've witnessed on the back of the pandemic and just how much hot air there may be in some stocks? I think that's a great question, Karen. Um, certainly, if Viacom and Viacom CBS is a strong business, you'll see the stock recover. Uh, 
but there are liquidity concerns in the market. And one of the things that allowed an Archegos situation to occur was the fact that there's a tremendous amount of liquidity sloshing around in the market provided by central banks. There's also still a, a leftover Greenspan central bank uh, put that's apparently still in vogue. Uh, and it's not surprising, given government and central bank reliance on the wealth effects to re-engineer inflation and growth in economies. Um, having said all of that, a strong companies will recover. So this is this may be a, a short-term, uh, liquidity-driven uh, event that impacts Viacom, Discovery, Badu, Tencent, and a number of the others. Uh, but if the companies are truly that strong, I expect that prices will recover. Uh, Greg, can I ask you... Um... What next here? If we look at the recent uh, period we've seen, we've actually had a lot of messages about the excess leverage that we're seeing and the vulnerabilities in particular of some actors in the market. Um, so Greensill Capital, we know that was around credit and excess uh, risk-taking. Um, Melvin Capital, got beaten up by the uh, the Wall Street bets community over GameStop. Again, another fund, excess leverage, uh, taught a lesson by the retail investors, if we interpret it in that way. And now we're talking about this 20 billion margin call. Uh, what next? Where is the risk in this market that could have systemic consequences? Uh, great question. We don't know what's next, but we do know that there's usually never one cockroach. Where there's one problem, there are going to be others. Uh, and I think that was the fear of the markets coming into the beginning of this week and even into this morning, although generally the markets are shrugging off these events and futures are up in the UK this morning and they're slightly down to unchanged in the US. Um, the real issue will be one of regulatory involvement uh, across the globe. Things like total return swaps uh, just weren't counted or weren't uh, looked at for the positions that were held uh, by the holders of the swaps. Uh, so you really didn't know what the risk exposure was of the portfolio that entered into the swap, but also of the bank that was on the other side of the, of the swap. And it's clear that neither of the parties were exercising risk control when they put these total return swaps on. Uh, I think the next shoe to fall will be an increase in regulatory oversight. In the United States, we're already seeing the government regulators pressing for uh, investigations and interrogations of those involved. Uh, in all likelihood, we'll see derivatives be added to uh, additional scrutiny and probably to the, cap the outstanding derivatives positions uh, added to the the capital basis of banks and investment banks, which you know could restrict activity in the future. I think that's the big shoe that could fall. Um, you've said that this you don't view this as a threat to the um, the broader bull market that we've experienced. Just give us a, a market line. How do you think we are sitting for this so-called reflation trade, uh, given that we continue to get these uh, minor market events? Uh, I, and I think that's that's what it is in the overall terms of the market, a minor event. Uh, the economy is growing. Uh, the economy in the U.S. is growing and around the world. And the economy is growing because the big challenge to the economy, COVID, is finally being dealt with. I mean, three months ago, at the end of 2020, the U.S. was having difficulty testing 2 million people a day. 
And now we're giving vaccines to three and a half million people a day. And the United States, by the middle of May, will have reached herd mentality. And some estimates are by June to the beginning of July, we'll have most of the U.S. fully vaccinated. It's that recovery and the ability of bringing service, hospitality and small businesses back online that's driving the economy. We're also, of course, seeing huge government stimulus around the world. Prior to the U.S. American Rescue Plan, the G20 already had $10 trillion in stimulus uh, in the economy. The U.S. is going to have another 3 to $5 trillion probably by the end of this year. Um, given general economic recovery, huge government stimulus, uh, and some of the accelerations that we've talked about in the past, the, the U.S. fourth industrial revolution uh, that's driven by supply chain uh, reconfiguration and biopharma and the uh, transition to a digital economy are all the things that will continue to drive the economy forward. The worries, of course, will be government debt, potential inflation. It's not a worry right now. Uh, geopolitics and you know, increasingly around the world, but certainly in the U.S., uh, increases in taxes and regulatory policy. Greg, um, good to hear from you, my friend, this morning. Uh, look, in terms of, uh, let's just go back a stage, if I may, and just have a quick chat about this archaic from my point of view. I hear what you're saying about regulation. I think it's a battleground still to be uh, fought out, and I don't disagree with you at all. But I'm just thinking about, again, our dear old beleaguered friends in the middle office, i.e. the risk managers at the moment as well. I think they're going to get new uh, attention. Maybe some of those bankers who basically rode roughshod over them are going to go back to them and say, yeah, OK, we may have got away with this one because it doesn't seem to be an LTCM type contagion at the moment. What else should we be worried about? And with that in mind, does that mean some of the leverage elsewhere in the market is going to be pulled back in aggressively in the next couple of sessions, next couple of weeks, because they think, wow, we got away with this one. It doesn't appear to be contagion. What else do we need to pull in? Yeah, I think that uh, risk management incorporates, of course, many different things liquidity management is what's going to be concentrated on. So you can take risk and you can hedge risk a number of different ways. But when you have to get out of a position, you have to consider the size of that position relative to the liquidity in the marketplace. And that clearly wasn't considered by the risk managers in this case at the big banks. Even when they tried to come together last Friday to create a plan that would uh, cause an exit and an effective exit for all of the banks involved. They couldn't come together because they realized the liquidity impacts were just too great. So it became every man for himself. Goldman was the first man out. Unfortunately, Credit Suisse and no more are going to suffer the consequences. But I do think that you will take a look, uh, that, that the risk manager should take a look at the leverage that's out there, the hedges that they have in place relative to those positions, but also increasingly the liquidity needs that they may have should other events happen or some of these other positions go bad. Uh, I think that's going to be the focus. Uh, and I, I do think that you will see a short-term reduction in leverage. Uh, it probably is not a bad thing if you see a longer-term reduction in leverage, but markets tend to do what they do, which is provide capital to people who want to invest and pay a fee for it. Greg, back in the long day, many, 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 many years ago, I used to be run a small prop desk at a, a small investment bank as well. So I know what it was like. Then that all got banned and proprietary trading came off the books. And that's fair enough. But we all know now that proprietary trading and investment banks exists still. It's called delta hedging. And aggressive delta hedging means you can take positions in advance of what you think client flow will be. Is that another area where we need to look and say, hang on a second, there's a little bit more too many similarities from the old proprietary trading days uh, on 
some of these investment banks' books. Yeah, absolutely. CMTA desk, proprietary trading. The risks have changed. They've shifted into delta hedging desk. They've they've shifted into um, the the derivatives desk and the positions that they're taking. They're creating positions and derivatives contracts, customized derivatives contracts that had the exact same exposures as their old prop trading desks. Uh, so they've just switched their activity to something that you know, it doesn't fall under the regulatory regime. Uh, that is absolutely going to be a focus of the U.S. administration, I would imagine, the global administrations going forward. And Greg, very much enjoyed uh, hearing your perspective and uh, thanks for sharing your expertise with us this morning. Greg Williamson with us, Head of Strategy at Pluribus Labs. And just a quick note, if you want to read more about this story on CNBC.com, you can find out how Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley managed to avoid the losses suffered by Credit Suisse and Numera in the wake of the Archegos fallout. That story is on our website now. Terrific, Karen. Thank you. Advisory group Glass-Lewis has raised concerns over the pay package for incoming CEO Andrea Orsell. The group is calling on investors to protest against his €7.5 million annual remuneration, uh, raising concerns that the equity award doesn't appear to be tied to performance. Unicredit had said that starting uh, from 2022, the former UBS chief's pay will be linked to how the company does under his leadership. Should we tell them what we talk about off camera quickly before we go to break? Oh, really? <laughs> no, no, the other conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, fine. not that one. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, the one about risk managers after the GFC. Yes. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. But, but you've made the point, and I yes. agree. Yes. Um, well, uh, knowing a few risk managers, as you do, absolutely, yeah. they were able to ask their Anything own price right after the GFC. Uh, and so, you know, all the desks had to be beefed up, all the departments had to be beefed up because the regulator said it had to be that way. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that we're now in this situation again where we are asking the same questions over and over again about whether the risk officer actually had a good look at the positions to make sure they were comfortable with the exposure. Um, and it, uh, the other thing I just want to throw in, I mean, here we are, we're sitting here day in, day out, listening to the professionals talking about the dumb money. And usually they talk about the dumb money being the retail punter. Well, I'm afraid for the professionals, you've not shown yourself to be that clever. If only this channel had said that some hedge funds are not created equal with other hedge funds out there, that there is the creme de la creme at the top, and then there's an awful lot of people out there they call themselves hedge funds. They're just punting the market, just like you are, but they've got a lot more money behind them. Right, coming up on the show, is this me? Coming up on the show. The ship that has held up sea lanes for nearly a week is now freed. But with hundreds of ships caught in a tailback, companies are counting the cost of delays and question the frailties of maritime travel. That coming up next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. If there's anyone 
been ever more excited than the world looking at that tiny little crane working next to that enormous ship, which, as we all know now, has containers which are 90 miles long when you put them end to end. Yeah. Did you see that little picture? It was a daft picture, though, wasn't it? it? I mean, you could see what they were trying to do. Whatever the journalists who got that one, we should have earned some serious money. But it it just looked really silly, especially with the bucket. looking as though it was trying to push this uh, huge container ship back into the water. Yeah, they got the proper the tugs in, though, didn't they, in the end? Yeah, um, did. Anyway, the good news is that oil supplies are flowing again, as uh, indeed, as is world trade. Uh, as attention turns to Thursday's OPEC Plus meeting, where members will be considering extending supply curbs. I mean, the oil has rallied. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we're, we're flat today, ostensibly. But uh, we tried to hit low 63s yesterday on Brent and on, obviously, the knee jerk on this story. And, Personally, I thought that was highly logical. And then we had a a significant rally, of course, because people thought, well, hang on a second. This is good for world trade, bad perhaps for uh, um, for people who are looking to profit from the fact that uh, oil was held up. But good for world trade. And hence, obviously, they're thinking, yeah, let's crack on with the oil price. So uh, 65 bucks on Brent, 61.54 WTI. The other thing about yesterday's session, actually, it was remarkably calm. We saw so much volatility on four days in a row, tail end of last week. Uh, actually, really, really calm markets at the moment. So I'm fascinated to see what happens next with OPEC. Traffic in the Suez Canal has resumed after that mighty little crane did a great job uh, and some big tugs. Uh, has resumed after the ever given uh, cargo vessel was freed on Monday. Around 30,000 cubic metres of sand were excavated and 13 tugboats were required to free the 400 metre long vessel. The Suez Canal Authority says it may take three and a half days to clear the backlog of 422 ships. Total CEO Patrick Pouillonnet has told CNBC that oil price reaction to the Suez Canal delays have been a bit overstated. Now, speaking at the launch of Adnox Murban Crude Futures Exchange, this is what he said. The Suez Canal is maybe not as important as uh, you want to be. You know, uh, you don't have so many crude tankers going through the Suez Canal. Most of the crude tankers are going through Cape Town. So maybe there is a small eruption. Markets have re- overreacted to the news, I think. It's not so fundamental, I mean. But, uh, you know, the more you have some transparency, liquidity, the better it is for all these markets, or commodity markets. So for me, uh, that's a good trend. And I'm very uh, happy that uh, this decision by Abu Dhabi, by Adnoc, has been taken. Again, it's a good jump in the 21st century for all these economies. So, um, Mr. El Badri, mm. the Libyan former OPEC Secretary General before... Um, the current one, Mr. Barkindo, is a man mm. I had the pleasure of talking to, actually, over many, many years. We may have disagreed about some stuff, other times we agree, but I had the pleasure of speaking to him for a good decade or so. He once said to me, well, look, you know, the oil supply market, as it was then, is about 80 million barrels a day. Now it's near 100 million barrels. Mm. But actually, the traded market is somewhere in the region of about 3 billion barrels a day or something crazy like that. I forget the exact number, but it was a long time ago, the conversation. And it got me thinking a lot because, of course, what he was doing was suiting his own goal, blaming the speculators for the price oscillation. It's not us. We're getting a fair price for the consumer. We want a fair price for the producer, which is something I've heard from every single OPEC executive over the years. And, you know, that's their mantra and they're sticking to it. Mm. My point here being is the secondary market in the oil contracts we have are absolutely fantastic. They're very liquid. You can normally get on a trade unless it was the April expiry last year on WTI, which yeah. was a tricky situation for many. But by and large, the secondary market is stunningly efficient, especially for the producers who want to hedge their product. Uh, and I'm going to stick, stick by this. And I know that our team in Abu Dhabi has worked really hard uh, with the team over at Adnoc to get some great coverage of this new contract. My point is very simple. And it's the same point I made with Hadley yesterday as well. If it ain't broke, why are they trying to fix it? Uh, shall I jump in? Yes. Um, opacity. 
opacity. Uh, and you know uh, better than anybody around this desk about how difficult... Well, how difficult it is um, to actually get clarity on the fundamental dynamics for this market. And all of the people that you've effectively mentioned in your previous comment, who are suppliers, are also traders. So as much as they may put their hand up and say, no, 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 we're not creating the volatility, um, they are in part creating the volatility and concealing the price discovery, as we know here. But the underlying trend will emerge regardless of the intermediate volatility. And what's clear is the underlying trend has been to take the price higher from that debacle that was the uh, forward contract trade that we had when it effectively went to zero. So as you watch the markets at the moment, um, I think you do need to keep a clear weathered eye on this OPEC session, but you don't necessarily need to pay um, a huge attention to the, to the headline commentary. I think you just need to watch the demand dynamic and for confirmation of keeping the trend in place for prices in this range. Karen's got some great points to make. I just want to make one point. When we had that debacle of the April expiry last year, March yeah. last year for the April expiry WTI, Brent got down to basically 20 bucks. Brent was probably worth about 20 bucks at the time, given the concerns about global demand. So Brent still worked as a reliable hedging, tradable instrument there. You can see you know, WTI, negative 37, Karen. But Brent was at 20 bucks, give or take the change on that day. Even at the peak of the crisis, it was tradable at 20. I just want to look at the story from a slightly different perspective because I don't think the ever given story has been just about oil. To me, it was a story about another test to global supply chains. And I think it's a story that we've not really looked at before COVID, just how integral and how linked to many of these different shipping channels are. You know, we had first up the crisis in China around COVID and the factories of the world, which was unable to supply many other places globally instantly because it was dealing with the COVID challenge. And then we've had uh, different hoarding times across the various markets as COVID then rolled across various parts of the world. More recently, we've been struggling with this chip shortage, and that's impacted everything from automakers to electronics. But now I think this story just casts fresh light on this major shipping route where you've got oil coming through, major tankers seeing and shipping costs go up, but also container ships. And you know, Musk was warning about the knock-on to disruptions here, uh, even though we've got uh, business uh, resuming in the, in the Suez Canal. You've still got a backlog there. And Musk is saying it could take weeks to months to unravel. I think that's a nod to the fact that they had to reroute some of the ships around the Cape of Good Hope. So there were longer journeys involved there, but also no doubt uh, the product that's on board needs to come off. So there could be backlogs at some of the ports. And then, of course, the product that is yet to load onto some of the ships when they return. So I think for me, this was a story about global supply chains yet again. And the tests that have been through over the past 12 months, whether that leads to a slight reorganization and higher storage costs for some companies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.